Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Happy Thanksgiving, Ashley. Happy Thanksgiving, Candy. You know, this is a special time of the year. And we have a special episode today. We really do. We are heading into an interview with Tori Murden McClure. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you how this went down. You all know that we often call for listener requests. Well, a young lady named Ashton suggested that we do an episode about Tori Murden McClure, who, if you are not aware, among many other accomplishments, she is the first woman and the first American to row solo across the Atlantic. She recorded all of her personal experiences in a book. You're going to hear a lot more about that very shortly. But it also ended up being turned into a musical. Again, you'll hear more about Row as well. But what happened was, after Ashton sent the suggestion, I reached out to Tori, who happens to be president of Spalding University. Mm-hmm. And a huge shout out to Susan, who must be the most organized and efficient and warm (laughs) executive assistant ever because she got back to me within a day. She had checked in with Tori, who agreed very graciously to do the interview. And thank you to Susan, who has has worked to help set this up for us. And not only an interview, but a live in-person interview. That is right. Which is our second one we've ever done. So, you know, I had a little bit of nerves going into it. (laughs) And I have to give a shout out to our friend and listener of the show, big fan Hayden. Yes. Who came with us to act as our technical assistant and I was very grateful for him because we got it all set up we were ready to go and there was a radio signal Mm -hmm. interference we could hear music coming through the microphone so he was able to troubleshoot it and help us figure out how to get the radio sound out but the one thing we couldn't fix was there's a little intermittent beeping for about the first four minutes of the interview but then it goes away after those first first four minutes so if you can just kind of hang with us for those those first four it'll go away that's right and because this was a very special interview and occasion we set up a video camera Mm -hmm. if you are interested in viewing rather than just listening you can go on over to the scandal water podcast youtube channel and you can actually watch the interview because we filmed this in president mcclure's office and it is gorgeous it is gorgeous the bookshelf was beautiful and a lot of artifacts which actually get mentioned later in the interview so the few little teasers there, but we are getting ready to go into this interview now. You're about to hear from Tori Murden McClure. Let's dive in. We are here with President McClure, who has asked us to call her Tori. I'm not sure I can do that because I'm going to tell you guys, I am a little starstruck here, but I'm I'm going to try. Tori, thank you so much for speaking with us. It is such an honor. And we are just beyond excited about this opportunity. I'm not sure if we mentioned this in our initial email to you, but for our podcast, we we offer the opportunity for listeners to send in suggestions. Uh-huh. And that is how you came across our radar. Uh-huh. A lovely young woman wrote to us telling us 
how much you have impressed her and influenced her. And so when we realized you were so gracious about agreeing to this interview, when we realized that we were going to get to speak with you, we reached out to Ashton and we asked if she would like to record a brief message, uh-huh. which she was delighted to do. <laughs> and so I'm going to play that just briefly. I met Tori Martin McClure the summer before my senior year of high school at the Kentucky Governor's Scholars Program. I didn't really have any idea who she was, to be quite honest. I got to hear a little bit of her story from some of the faculty, and I was just kind of excited to get to meet someone from Kentucky who had done such amazing things. I was just really captivated by her story, and not even the story of her rowing across the ocean, but just the other stories of her life the way that she just pursued her passions with such reckless abandon in a way that I can only aspire. I mean, it's it's so hard to even think about. But at the end of her book, she says, many have asked why I waited so many years to write this book. The simplest answer is that I had to get comfortable with a life defined by something as small as a rowboat before I could write about it and still leave room enough to grow. And I find that so interesting because when I think about Tori Merton McClure, I don't think about this thing that she did. I I first think about all of the things that she is. I mean, she is so humble and kind. When I read her book, my mom read it and asked her to come and speak at Eminence High School. And I had the pleasure of being able to give her a tour of my school or the school where I had just graduated. And the way that she was so attentive to everyone and asked their questions. And I I remember one of the things that she said was that every person in the room was better than her at something. And you just don't meet people like that. This woman who had done so many things and deserves so much more recognition than what she has and yet would still stand up in front of a group of 12-year-olds and say something like that. I would hope that in anything that I ever do or achieve that I could approach it with the humility that Tori does. There's so many crazy stories about the way that her book was supposed to be a bestseller or that she was supposed to do this or that and it it didn't work out and she didn't get the recognition. But at the end of the day, I think that for the people that do know her and do know her story, that she's deeply touched each and every one of them. I've only had the honor and the privilege of speaking with her for a few moments once or twice. So I can't can't imagine the impact that she's had on thousands of people from all of her speaking engagements and things that she's done. So thank you to Ashton for that, but wow, what a tribute, (laughs) what a tribute. And, and I know that so many others feel the same way, which again is why we are very honored to talk to you. You have achieved so much, so much, but we're really going to hone in today on the achievement that Ashton did reference your accomplishment, your feat of being the first woman and the first American to row solo across the Atlantic, which you chronicled in your very personal book, A Pearl in the Storm, How I Found My Heart in the Middle of the Ocean. And then it later, of course, became a musical. We'll get to that in a minute. But but your book, Ashley and I have both read it, Mm -hmm. both loved it. And we are very excited to get to ask you about 
the book and, and of course your experiences. So well, first let me uh, thank Ashton because uh, you know when I, I, I've been speaking to the Governor Scholars Program for since 1996. Mm-hmm. I missed the summer of 1998 because I was in the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. But other than that I have you know pretty faithfully done usually I do their opening convocations. One year I was climbing Denali or better known as Mount McKinley and so I had to do one of the later convocations for Governor Scholars, and I learned very quickly, you want to do the opening convocation because by the time they're a few weeks in, they're too cool for school. But if you're, <laughs> if you're, if you're there one of the first days, they're still scared and, and attentive. And, and uh, nice. it's, it's very, very nice. But um, the Governor Scholars have been a great, great group of young people with whom to speak each year because they're super bright and they give me such hope for the future of the Commonwealth. And... Um, it's nice to be able to, you know, corrupt the youth of, of the state. Yeah. Wow. In a good way. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, goodness. In the dedication of your book, you give a beautiful explanation of the story behind your boat's name. Would you mind sharing that with our listeners? Right. So um, there are a couple variations of the story. Uh, Isaac Dennison writes about uh every pearl being an adventure, but the, the notion is that um, a dream is like a, a grain of sand that works its way into an oyster, and the more that you're willing to work at it and work at it, the more it can become a pearl. Mm-hmm. And as I was writing the book, I was thinking about all the people who have been pearls in my life, and I, I particularly like pearls because men don't wear pearls, mm-hmm. yeah. but I, it's rare to see a man with pearls. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of a, a classically female piece of, of jewelry. And uh, my boat, uh, the American Pearl, is a boat that, that I built. I didn't design it. Uh, it was designed by a Brit- British fellow, Philip Morrison. Um, but I did physically build the boat and rebuild the boat. And that sense of growing something, building something, chasing a dream, uh, I think we all have those things that we're willing to work at. Um, I particularly think of parents <laughs> and uh, the need to work at raising children and, and being engaged and, and shaping their, their futures, but not controlling them mm-hmm. in a way that stifles their ability to, to learn and grow on their own, yeah. Yeah. which is why I've chosen to be in education. Mm-hmm. On uh, page 17, you said, I knew I could spend a quarter of a year without people but going a quarter of a year without books was unimaginable, which I can identify with that. So my question is, if you were forced to narrow it down to two books that you could have taken on your trip, what would they have been? You know, uh, you, you often get asked the question, if, you know, if, you're, if you're marooned on a desert yes. island, what book would you take? Right. And, and typically I say, I would take a book about the island. <laughs> right. Uh, but if I could only choose two books, they'd be the complete works of Shakespeare mm. and the Bible. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily the Bible for religious reasons, although I absolutely I went to divinity school at Harvard. I have a, a strong faith background. But it's a book that's been around for thousands of years and has been written and rewritten. We like to pretend God wrote it, but there's lots of historical evidence that says, you know, lots of humans intervened. But it's still the greatest literature that humanity has compiled into one reference. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the complete works of Shakespeare. It's the, the greatest writing in the English language anyway. Yeah. Um, there's certainly um, pretty amazing things in, in the Eastern tradition, but we're not as familiar with them. 
And it's a good way to get many books in one, the complete works. <laughs> That's right. Multiple works. That's right. So it's working around it. I That's like right. that. Although I do have a beef with Shakespeare. You know, I think they're something like 32 plays. I don't think there's a happy marriage in one of them. No. <laughs> no, no. Point. <laughs> and as a happily married woman, I'd like to, you know, just yes. pick, a, pick a fight about that. Brief sidebar, do you think that he wrote all of his books? Because there's a controversy. Did he write it? Was it Francis Bacon? Did he have other people? I don't know if it was Francis Bacon. but Earl of Oxford. Yes. Yeah. Do, who do you, do you um, think he was the author? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble with lots of people, like, but I am, I am a... Uh, Earl of Oxford. You'd think so? Yeah, because if you study his life and uh -huh. his experiences, there are a lot of like, I don't know, he was in Venice. He got marooned by pirates and mm -hmm. you know left for dead on the beach. So lots of things that show up in Shakespeare's play just happen to happen, happen to in him. that gentleman's life. And it's the Edward de Vere, I forget his, his proper name, but it doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue. But there's a whole controversy in academia uh -huh. about if you're a if you're an Earl of Oxford person then you're a snob really? <laughs> and you don't think that uh, you know a relatively uneducated gentleman that we have one extent thing that we know he wrote which was his will mm. um, doesn't match the language of the plays. Right. There's all this sort of you're you're on the side of privilege <laughs> yeah. if you think it was the Earl of Oxford and not William Shakespeare. You're just going by evidence. Uh, I don't know. You know, I'm gonna I'm not gonna firmly say okay. it is because nobody knows for sure. That's right. So my uh, actual follow up question was. I was curious, why did you, when you went on your original trip, why did you choose the book written by Anne Morrow Lindbergh? What drew you to her specifically? Instead of, say, Amelia Earhart, who is in Roe. Yeah, so Anne Morrow Lindbergh uh, wrote a lovely book called A Gift from the Sea. And it is clearly written in her later life. Mm -hmm. And she's, the opening chapter, she's headed to the beach. And absolutely, again, a woman of privilege. Um, but had had horrible things happen. Her child was kidnapped and mm -hmm. killed, and um, lots of challenges with um, being married to a famous man, Charles Lindbergh, and mm -hmm. um, uh, he was pretty much vilified during World War II because yes. he had had some, um, you know, respect for German engineering, right. and and um, so we all are open to really painful episodes and things that aren't necessarily within our control. Perception takes over and mm -hmm. then we're in, in the soup and, and we didn't really have anything to do with getting into the soup or we reacted badly to something that we should have reacted badly to and it got it overblown. Mm -hmm. um, but that sense of she um, describes life as different shells from the beach, sort of simple phases in your early life, mm -hmm. and it gets more complex, and then you're a multi-chambered nautilus is one of her later shells, that sense of we are our layers of experience and pain and healing. And I was, uh, I serve on one of the boards at the Carter Center in Atlanta, um, Rosalind Carter and President mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter, and it's on mental health. Mm -hmm. And that sense of folks were talking about trauma and one of the very thoughtful people says we need to stop talking about trauma and start talking about healing right because that's from the trauma healing from the trauma and that you know rather than saying well so-and-so was traumatized it's like so-and-so needs some time to heal yeah and and that the emphasis needs to be 
not on the harm, but on the healing and the work we need to do to heal one another from mm -hmm. the wrongs in the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. The other thing is, uh, uh, um, Anne Morrow Lindbergh was a Smithy, and I went to Smith College. Oh, oh nice. And I get to meet her once. Uh, oh. I was going to ride my bicycle home from school. Uh-huh. Smith College, Massachusetts, to Kentucky. <laughs> and um, I was a sophomore at the time, and she was visiting during commencement, and uh, I and two friends went to see her, and we explained that we were going to ride our bicycles from Massachusetts to Kentucky. We actually ended up going from Niagara Falls. But I rolled out this map, and I said, um, I've talked these two friends into riding with me to Kentucky, and, mm -hmm. I, and I pointed to Massachusetts and then Kentucky, and I said, look, it's all downhill. <laughs> I told them it was all downhill. And she said, are you the navigator? I said, yes, I am, and she just smiled. Oh, that's funny. My background is actually as an English teacher and a literacy coach, and so as I was reading your book, I had so many fun noticings about your structure and your organizational techniques, and so two that, that came to mind were how you used quotes or excerpts from literary texts to introduce new chapters or new sections. And the other was, it was so interesting to me that the majority of your book was dedicated to your first trip, while a relatively small amount of print went towards your second trip. Right. So knowing how intentional you are, yeah. I was going to ask you as an author, what led you to make those decisions? Well, um, like most people, I think I learn more from my failures mm -hmm. than I do from my successes. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is I had a very wise, the agent who helped sort of market my book or get it, get it printed uh, at, by HarperCollins, which is a very reputable house, um, said, Tori, you had to row across the ocean twice. Your reader does not. <laughs> nice. And sort of the sense that the second trip wasn't, dramatically different mm -hmm. and the only thing that, that informed the second trip uh, in a way that was different from the first is I had fallen in love with Mac McClure mm -hmm. and so the elements that sort of touched on Mac are we missing Mac and the need to to be finished with this part of my quest um, is what ended up in the that sort of second part of the book but it is the second row is the successful row is almost an also ran Mm -hmm. in, the, in the book, and um, we can talk about that again when we take up the uh, question of the musical, because I think it made it hard for the writers of the musical to figure out how to do that. Oh, mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. So again, as readers, we, she and I, notice many instances where in the midst of an informative or suspenseful passage, there would suddenly be a quip, a little humorous <laughs> quip. For example, one of my favorites, and one that Candy and I both identify with pretty deeply, <laughs> is from page 149, where it says, I would rather pry a thousand dead squid off the deck of my boat than enter a room full of strangers for the purpose of engaging in small talk. Yes. <laughs> so what importance do you place on humor and how did your own sense of humor support you on your on your original quest? Let's just go back to the truth of that statement. I, you know, I've had have young people ask me all the time, "Are you afraid of anything?" I said, "Yes, cocktail parties. <laughs> yes. Cocktail parties terrify me." Yes. You know, you're entering a room with no plan or script, and I can be a bit of a lump at such things. And then inevitably, somebody will ask me about a rowboat. I will not want to talk about rowboats at the mm -hmm. cocktail party, but I will, you know, end up talking about rowboats. And then there's this little circle around me, and I'm not a lump anymore. But it's 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 torturous, mm -hmm. um, because I'd love to talk about ideas, and I'd mm -hmm. love to talk about 
um, challenges and dreams and hopes and mm-hmm. aspirations, but my go-to is always, "What do you think about time travel?" And they'll <laughs> either keep them in the conversation or they'll go away, and it's like, "Oh, great!" <laughs> but, but that sense of humor um, uh, when you've done the sorts of things I have done, you become a favorite guinea pig for psychological testing. Mm. Like I think for years I was on some list at U of L for psychology classes that you know, well, go test her. And um, it, it was so prevalent that eventually I called the faculty member and I said, my name is Tori, Tori Murden McClure. And he said, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> and I said, I said, why? He goes, I send all my most challenging students to you. I said, well, why is that? He goes, nobody can mess up a data set like you can. Wow. In that I don't oh. test as, you know, typical. Right. I had a, a lovely battery of tests when I was still in divinity school at Harvard. I had skied to the South Pole, and the psychology folks at Harvard wanted to test me <laughs> and figure out where you where you fall on sort of, sort of a way out of the box, um, creative, connecting dots nobody else would think of, way out to the side. I'm a genius, and then in the sort of nuts and bolts, rational thinking, engineering kind of stuff, I'm a genius. In the middle, where most people live their lives, mm-hmm. in those areas of social skills, mm-hmm. not not so much. <laughs> but because I have both sides, I can fill in the gaps in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I don't have I don't test on the spectrum, but I have to think about it. Ah. And uh, many people don't. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch to a little bit about your family for just a second. So the primary plotline follows your quest to row across the Atlantic, of course. But flashbacks to your childhood are used to develop one of your subplots. And I'm sure that I speak for everyone who has read your book or hopefully heard the musical that we fell in love with your brother, Lamar. And we just wanted to know, how is he doing today? He's doing really well. He lives about 10 minutes from me. Mm -hmm. I knew I married the right guy when Lamar called the house and said, I'm not need cock to you. I need cock to Mac. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I got to talk to a guy. I don't want to talk to you. And, um, yeah, and I've often said Lamar. The best parts of who I am come from Lamar, and the worst parts of who I am come from growing up with, you know, trying to defend him yeah. and take care of him. Yeah. yeah. Just a little editorial yeah. comment. For those of you who have not yet read this book, you need to. Um, it is just so, so personal, so captivating, and also just impressive. But I think hearing you say that is is so satisfying for people who have read it because you leave the book, and I wanted... Obviously, I wanted to know more about you, but yes. I also wanted to know how are things going with Mac and how is Lamar. Yes. So to hear yes. you share yes. that that you guys are all together doing well yeah. is just such a it's such a lovely thing. Yeah. Yes. Well, at one point in your story, you talk about a very kind-hearted and and I think somewhat brave young man named Eric, who showed what you refer to as benevolent leadership by standing up for Lamar and saying nobody can pick on him; he can't defend himself. Yeah. And you talk about how incredibly impactful that was to both you and Lamar. And so what I would ask is, what are some ways you think we could promote more benevolent leadership in our society today? Yeah, it's probably worth me sort of stepping back and telling this story. Yes. Uh, Lamar and I, you know, we, we moved a lot as, as young people. And so got in the habit of being the new kids on the block. And I had learned that one of the ways you can make friends is to be a successful athlete. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were good at basketball or baseball or whatever the sport of the season was, you would get invited to, to play. 
And so I was playing basketball on the, at the local playground, and Lamar was on the sidelines. And out of the corner of my eye, I watched a little boy pick up a rock and throw it at my brother. And before he could pick up a second rock, I had tackled him. Mm-hmm. Now, he was my size or bigger, but I just put him down. And if it were a cartoon, you would have seen, seen <laughs> fists and feet in the cloud of dust. <laughs> and um, a young man named Eric Fee and a, another boy named Dale Ellis came and kind of pulled us apart. And they kind of queried the situation, and they, I, you know, he threw a rock at my brother. And they, they take the young boy off sort of to the other side of the playground and interrogate him mm. from my point of view. They were interrogating him. Mm. And then they kind of dragged him back to my brother and made him apologize. Oh, nice. I had never seen anything like that, ever, ever, ever. And I was blown away. And then Eric Fee pulled all the young children on the playground. It was after school. There weren't any adults. Pulled all the children in the playground into a circle and said, no one will tease or taunt Lamar. He can't defend himself. It's Mm -hmm. not fair. And if you do, I'm going to settle the score. And somebody asked about me. What about her? I think she can take care of herself. (laughs) Um, But that had such an important influence on my life and influences to me to this day, mm-hmm. that sense of, I want to be in a position to be able to dictate the rules on the playgrounds on which I stand. Mm-hmm. And um, Eric did that by being one of the best students in our class. Ah, forget one of the best. He was the best student mm-hmm. in our class. And he was one of the best athletes. And that sense of being a scholar-athlete kind of defined the brand that I wanted to search You know, my whole life. I wanted to be a scholar and an athlete. Mm-hmm. And it has served me well because with that combination, there are many opportunities to be able to um, create peace and justice out of thin air, which is what Eric did for me. Mm-hmm. Have you kept up with Eric? Does he know about your book and how well, much you attribute to him? Well, as I was, the book was almost going to come out, I sent the passage. Um, I found tracked down Eric Fee and I sent him the passage and I said, you know, I don't want to say anything that doesn't feel accurate this is how I remember it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's your recollection he was honestly said I don't remember that event but it rings true Mm -hmm. um and he had gone on he studied at Harvard went Mm -hmm. to medical school became a physician he played football at Harvard when the musical was about to come out there's this lovely song devoted to Eric Fee and uh it's I think it's called Ode to Eric Fee and uh HR um the head of Human Resources here at Spalding said, so what's Eric Fee's real name? And I said, uh, Eric Fee? It's a great name. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, does he know he's part of a musical? I'm like, ooh, maybe I should reach out again. (laughs) And so he came uh, when uh, there was a full production at the Williamstown Theater Festival in the summer of 2021. Mm -hmm. Eric came. Oh, nice. There was this... What a full circle moment. Completely you know, gushy moment of me being a total basket case. Happily married, you know, <laughs> waiting for Eric Fee to come. And, you know, he came with his girlfriend and, and my, you know, my husband's there and he's got his girlfriend and I'm going, oh, and, and, 
You know, in my mind, he would have been six foot six with the body of a Greek god. And uh -huh. he, he was, you know, my height, maybe a teeny bit shorter. And, you know, he Just was a regular like person. 60, you know, like yeah. late 50s as I was. And like, mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it funny how just something was so significant to you and he, he didn't quite remember it, but thought it rang true. And it happens so much in our lives where someone will say something. It just yeah. changes your life. And they're just living their authentic well, self. Being and a person it, of Being character. a person of character, yeah. and it just changes people. Yeah, I, I had someone uh, reach out to me, not unlike Ashton, mm -hmm. who said, you know, I sprained my ankle and you carried me down the stairs. And mm. uh, it was a basketball player and mm -hmm. I was, um, you know, carrying a teammate down the stairs, but I didn't remember it. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was just another another thing, another day yeah. for you. Another, of course, yeah. I would do that. Yeah. I was yeah. big and strong, and I got to go down the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> just a quick follow-up question: Thinking about that idea of benevolent leadership and how it's impacted your life, has that had any impact on the fact that your university is one of the first compassionate universities? Yeah, I mean, it, it's both compassion and competition. I'm embarrassed to admit, I uh, one of. Uh, gentleman with whom I went to divinity school approached me and said, hey, we could make Spalding a compassionate university. And I said, I got work to do. Get out of my office. I'm busy. <laughs> and he said, well, Stanford's thinking about becoming a compassionate university. And I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> and in retrospect, it was a huge mistake um, because if Stanford had become the first world's first compassionate university, there would be hundreds, mm. hundreds of institutions that had signed on to the Charter for Compassion. And so it was a, a failure of ego on my part. Mm. Um, but I do feel very strongly that compassion is what's needed in our world. And as it's phrased in the Charter for Compassion, we must dethrone ourselves from the center of our world and place another there. Mm. And that sense of every one of the world's religions has some variation of the golden rule. Mm -hmm. And um, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Although Karen Armstrong, who did the bulk of the writing on their charter would say that's the easy way. In um, the oldest variation of the golden rule that we agree on, uh, scholars agree on, I shouldn't call myself a scholar in that context, um, it comes from Confucius mm -hmm. who says whatever is hurtful to you, you must refuse under any circumstances to do to another. Mm -hmm. Judaism picks up one of the earliest variations and uh, I imagine a miscreant first year student uh, asks Rabbi Hillel um, if you can recite the whole of Torah while standing on one foot, I will convert to Judaism. And he stands on one foot and he says, do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Um, at, which I think is the harder variation than the positive version. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move to your boat now. Yeah. So in the book on page five, for those who would like to look it up when you read it, you compare the size of the watertight sleeping area to that of a double wide coffin. So it is no secret to our listeners that I'm a big chicken. I'm afraid of absolutely almost everything. We, we make jokes about it and whatnot. So this is the part of the story that I was, I was panicking for you. And so the passage on page 14, this is where I, I had to set the book down and go, Ooh, okay, you said there were no landmarks. There was no land. I'm committed now, no diving overboard, no swimming back to shore. And I got heart palpitations on this. <laughs> so this, this moment of no return was, as I said, the moment of fright for me as a reader on your behalf. My wonderings are, and there's two of them, was there any moment besides the obvious encounter with Hurricane Danielle where you actually did feel a moment of fear? And 
after that, could you tell us some words of encouragement for others, such as myself, every day of my life, who may be facing their own moment of no return or something they're afraid of? I want to recommend a song for you. Okay. Uh, Grace McLean, who played Tori. She was wonderful. Yeah, who, uh, she's stupendous. Uh, somebody asked, what's it like watching a musical about yourself? And I said, it's like getting stripped naked in public, only it turns out... I'm in my mid-30s, I've got a great body, <laughs> I have an amazing talent, and I'm a redhead. Um, yes. But she has a song called Natural Disaster. Look it up. Okay. It's awesome. Okay. But you have the sense, I don't know that Grace herself is is that person, but mm -hmm. it's the, I'm afraid of everything. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a fantastic song. Okay. Natural Disaster by Let's Grace McLean. Thank okay. you. Um, All right, I will do that. And I would absolutely recommend it to anybody, and you can find it on YouTube. Okay. And, um, but that sense of we're all afraid of something, and we all have moments in our lives where we cross the threshold, and mm -hmm. there's no going back. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, historically you think of Caesar uh, crossing the Rubicon mm -hmm. and, you know, let the bridge be burned behind me. Mm -hmm. And it, you just can't make your way back even when you want to. Kind of in one of those situations in my life right now that we, we've crossed, we've gone past the tipping point. Mm -hmm. And they're often the most difficult moments in our lives, sort of the forks in the road. Mm -hmm. And as I was writing my book, I realize this the story because I didn't want it to be a story about me which was a challenge as I was writing it I did that masters of fine arts and writing program here at Spalding and it was all of my faculty mentors who were like yeah it's a really boring book if you're just gonna write about a rowboat rowing itself across the Atlantic Ocean <laughs> right right and so I had to put myself in the story but it was I was self-conscious about it mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I started to write about the people who stood at the forks in the road of right. my life mm -hmm. That's a story turned to a, uh, a story that I felt good about telling. Mm -hmm. And we all have moments of doubt. We all have moments when um, we've crossed some threshold and we can't make it back. Yeah. And that's when those are the moments we need to look for the mentors or the guides or the coaches mm -hmm. or the friends who will steer us in the right direction. Uh, someone recently said... Uh, yeah, when one door closes, another door opens, but it's really uncomfortable in the hallway. Yes, 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 that's right. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the mentor, and I, again, as an English teacher, I thought about your use of the hero's journey, Right. which was so interesting to me because I, I, could, I could see that. But that also segues into my next question. You've spoken many times about Muhammad Ali. If I understand correctly, you were the first employee for the Muhammad Ali Center. First full-time employee. There were plenty of other folks that... Did way more than I did, but I was the first full-time employee of the Ali Center. But yeah. what a, what a fascinating job yeah. to have! And yeah. I mean, wow. But but in in that context, you came across him several times, and very famously, he said to you, "You don't want to go through life as the woman who almost rode across the Atlantic." Why did that have the impact on you that it did? Well, let's go back and talk about the hero's journey. The hero's journey is, there are thousands and thousands of variations of the hero's journey in, in human history and literature. It is invariably a men's story. Like men oh, write, so true. men write the hero's journey. <laughs> and women about. write about romance. Yes. And you know, and you kind of get scolded if you're, you're a woman writing as if you were Odysseus. And it's not for us. Mm. And so, as my book was on the eve of publication, I'm like, 
Oh my goodness, I sold out. My book is Hero's Journey, Hero's Journey, Hero's Journey. Love Romance. Story. <laughs> Romance. And I'm like, I sold out. I gave in to peer pressure. Oh my gosh, how did I do that? And yet, it's just how it happened. Uh -huh. But women are pressured to write about relationships. And men are pressured to write about their deeds in the world. Mm -hmm. And the hero's journey is about deeds in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, it's usually about leaving the world you know or the home you know, mm -hmm. going out into the world, you know, meeting mentors and guides who lead you in the right direction. They're also villains and roadblocks and speed bumps that make it difficult that you have to, you know, the things you have to overcome. Where women are, you know, in the... I need to find love, I need to find connection, I need to raise children. And in my professional life, I have rarely been really stymied by men. Mm. It is women who call mm. me to be, to conform. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And that I had a sense. friend think through that with me once and she said, well, you know, as mothers, we really want our children to conform because we know that their lives will be easier if we teach them to conform. And, mm -hmm. and yet, for me, it's always been a strain of, well, you're succeeding really well, but you're not feminine enough in how you're doing it. And, and boy, that has toasted my cookies more than <laughs> once. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, that's so interesting. We were talking about this not long ago, just in the context of something that happened in our lives. Something else we've related to um, that you said that, that was along the same, the same you know, thread was that oftentimes women will also be criticized for wanting to accomplish something just that's a goal of their own unless there's a cause attached to right. it or some right, right, right. noble oh, yeah. thing that's, yeah. that's for other people. Right. Whereas that's never the case with men. Right. They just wanted to do it, so they went and did it. Right. Yes. They're not saving whales or, you know, mm -hmm. trying to work on climate change mm -hmm. or anything else. And, yeah, that's a challenge, too. But you asked about Muhammad Ali, and yes. I, um, he was just a magical magical human being and had lots of supporters and friends. Uh, the person who most comes to mind is, is Lani Ali, his last wife, um, who is herself an incredible human. And certainly in Muhammad's last decades, she was the spokesperson. Mm -hmm. And people often would forget that it wasn't Muhammad Ali that said this or that. It was Lani who said, Muhammad thinks or Muhammad feels oh. or Muhammad believes. And um, she was just magnificent. But Muhammad Ali, I have often said, had a soft spot for broken people. Mm -hmm. And I was broken at that time. And you don't get to be the world champion three times if you don't lose twice along the way. Mm -hmm. And he was removed from boxing at the height of his career mm -hmm. because of his uh, unwillingness to um, join the military and right. go to Vietnam. And y if you read the record of that, the injustice was profound. Talk about crossing a tipping point mm -hmm. and losing the life you know, the height of his career. And we couldn't have been more different. Um, Muhammad Ali had an ego as big as the Himalaya mountains. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet, it wasn't offensive because, you know, you meet those egotists who are like, I'm great, you stink. Mm -hmm. That wasn't Muhammad. I'm great and you're cool because you're with me. <laughs> you know, it was kind of his being. Yes. And he knew I'd been knocked down on the mat mm -hmm. and that I needed to get up. 
And he never actually used the words, kid, you got to get up. But his being said, kid, mm -hmm. you got to get up. Mm -hmm. Kid, you got to get up. But he waited for a very long time until he knew I was ready. And then he said, you don't want to go through life as the woman who almost rode across the mm -hmm. ocean. Mm -hmm. And would I have done it anyway? Probably. Having Muhammad Ali as an excuse, pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. yes. yeah. mm -hmm. He may have... Was this at the point where you, was the rumors out that someone else was going to do it at that point? Because he may have known you and gone, if I put in front of her that somebody else and her spirit of competition may yeah, keep Yeah, there were you. two sort of mentors at the time that they never met. Uh -huh. um, but Gerard Dabaville, yes. the French man. I loved him in the book. Yeah, he, <laughs> he rode solo across the Atlantic and then soloed the Pacific. First, yeah. first man to solo both oceans. And he was an amazing uh, friend, is, he's still alive, friend and mentor. He had the boat. Gerard mm -hmm. had the boat. Mm -hmm. So I, after the 1990 row, I set the boat adrift when I got on the Independent Spirit, or more accurately, they set the boat adrift because they couldn't lift it because mm -hmm. um, the cleats pulled out of the side of the boat. And, and so the, they just had to let go of the boat and it was eventually picked up by an American oil tanker and taken to France. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, French customs wouldn't let them offload the boat without paying a duty. Ah. And the captain said, but it's not worth anything. It's an ocean rowboat. And they were like, well, why did you stop and pick it up if it's just an ocean rowboat? So around and around they mm -hmm. went. And, and I called Gerard, who was a member of the European Parliament at the time. He's oh. kind of the Charles Lindbergh of France. Okay. And said, Gerard, there's this problem. They won't offload my boat. It's in Le Havre. And he called back just a few minutes later and said, there is no problem. Your boat will be offloaded tomorrow. <laughs> and so offloaded the boat. And Gerard held on to it till he knew about mm. the other women mm -hmm. wanting to do it. He helped move the boat to Germany where UPS could fly it home. That's amazing. But it was sort of that two amazing athletes and different parts of the world different personalities, both kind of recognizing here was somebody who had started something, here was somebody who needed to finish something, and they both helped to make it happen. If you could go back and relive one moment from either of those trips, what do you think that you would choose to relive? You know, the moment, I'll just say the moment that leapt to mind when you asked the question. Um, Stepping out of the boat literally into Max's arms. I was going to oh. guess that. Yeah. I was either going to guess that or the, the when you called him to propose. Yeah. I would not want to relive that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, you know, as all folks in similar situations, you know, I obsessed about it, thought about it, obsessed about it, worked on the words, worked on the words, worked on the words. You know, when I get, when I get out of this rowboat, will you marry me? Uh-huh. Sure, why not? I know. <laughs> I'm like, that was not exactly what I was hoping for. <laughs> the grand romantic. <laughs> yeah, sure. Huh? <laughs> I got nothing better to do on Sunday. Let's That's do right. it. That's <laughs> you do mention in the book that you've been rowing for over a decade when you set off on your first attempt. So is rowing still a part of your life? I rowed this morning. Nice. Yeah. Where do you row? On the Ohio River. I didn't row on the Ohio this morning. I rowed on the machine in the basement this okay. morning. But. <laughs> but typically I row on the Ohio River. Solo, or do you... Do you Solo, you, um, yeah. and uh, I rowed for many years in a double skull uh, with one other person, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's just... My schedule here makes it hard. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 20 minutes to get to the river. Mm -hmm. How long does it take to go across? How long can you do it? Or how fast Oh, it depends on which part of the river, but it's, you know, in some places it's a mile across. Okay. Um, but I can row faster than I can run in terms of crossing distance. Um, but well, I'm also a slow runner, but 
Yeah, so in the time I, it takes me to get to the boathouse and back, I can do a really, really good workout in the basement. And so, oh, yeah. you know, in, in this job, time is sometimes the most mm -hmm. important um, mm -hmm. commodity we have. Well, changing gears, we have mentioned the musical row a few different times yeah. now, which loved. Yeah. Um, it's available on Audible. Yeah. And first, I wanted to ask you, how did that come about? <laughs> well, we were. Uh, it was probably about a decade ago. Uh, I was in this office, sitting at this table, when mm -hmm. two wonderful artists, not unlike the two of you, mm -hmm. came and said, "Hey, we'd like to get the rights to your, to your book to perhaps write a musical." And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm an introvert. I don't want a musical. I don't want anything to do with a musical. No. Nope. Mm -hmm. And Dawn Landis, who is from Louisville and was a Governor Scholar in 1998, yes. so she was a scholar who missed me, mm -hmm. um, pulled out her guitar and sang two songs that were really smart and oh, really on target. One of the songs, I, you know, shed a tear. It was just really touching. And I thought, okay, wait a minute. It's a musical about a woman alone in a rowboat. It's right. going nowhere, right? Right, right? What's the fear? I'm never going to see these people again. Don't crush their dreams. Yes, you have my permission. <laughs> They're like, no, no, seriously, what would it take to get the rights? I'm like, that's right, I'm a lawyer. Here, I'll write it down. You have my permission. <laughs> and I slid the paper across the desk. They looked at each other. They went back to New York City, where they were both living at the time. They sent me a box of cookies. So Mac tells anyone who will listen that I sold the rights to my book for a box of cookies. <laughs> and then they went and did it. Yeah. And it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so true to me and so true to the book. Mm -hmm. They were incredibly hard. And like the book, the, the show had its own hurricanes because it was supposed to premiere summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. Got canceled because of COVID. They kept the cast together. And I think Roe was the first musical in history to premiere on the Audible format. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful recording. Then it was produced the summer of 2021 at Williamstown. But because of COVID, they had to do it all outside. Right. It rained epically. I am Princess Dark Cloud. It rained <laughs> epically. And, you know, the technical crew walked off because of the, you know, working conditions. Mm -hmm. they, they literally performed it over water on a reflecting pool uh, behind an art museum. Wow. And I was going to ask, it, what did the it, staging look it like? It just caught, it was just really, really difficult mm -hmm. for the cast. You know, they never really got to find their stride because mm -hmm. they're on, they're off, they're on, they're off. And, um, I went uh, to see the final night, and the the technology just went poof, and they couldn't couldn't do the closing night. They couldn't do opening night because of rain, and they couldn't do closing night because. So you the, didn't get to the, actually see it. No, I got to see it in between. Okay, I got good. to see it three times. Okay. Um, and uh, with friends each evening, mm -hmm. different friends each evening, and uh, yeah, it was pretty magical. Listening to it, I was so disappointed that I, I couldn't find any video clips. I wanted to see it so yeah, badly, yeah, yeah. and I couldn't find any. But I think they—I don't think they were ever, ever able to do a video of a full production between oh. rain and the evening. They had lots of cameras. Oh. For some reason, cam cameras didn't work. It was really oh kind of snake bitten. Wow, uh, so disappointing. I, I hope Roe does not have the reputation of Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but but it was interesting because listening to it, it is beautiful. The songs, the, the voices, it was so beautiful. But there were a few changes, which I'm assuming are probably narrative economy and dramatization. You have to do some little things here and there. And you also spoke about some of the challenges. How do you represent some of these things, you know, in this type of a setting? So what 
what's one of your favorite things about how, how they moved it from page to stage? I saw a very early version in New York at a place called Joe's Pub. And I thought the, that Joe's Pub would be like the Rudyard Kipling here in Louisville, oh, you know, yeah. a little bar with a stage, which it kind of is. But it's off the public theater, and it's where Hamilton did its first okay. sort of readings and things. And so it's a, it's a prestigious venue, but I didn't know the difference because this is not my world. But I went, and it, the show I saw that evening is nothing like what it Roe Ro as it is today. And it, if Roe goes on it will be very different. And mm. that evening, I remember going to see Don and Danny downstairs and saying, you will be under pressure to change the story. It is your story now, you can change it. And they looked at me horrified. I mean, the looks on their face were horrified because uh, they, they, and they've still main, maintained um, integrity to the story and integrity to, to me as a human. An example would be when they were casting for Roe, they worked very hard to find just the right actor to play Lamar. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions was, should we cast a Down syndrome actor? Mm -hmm. Lamar's not Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And um, how do they go about casting him? And uh, Lamar is profoundly, um, uh, has profound hearing loss. Mm -hmm. And so they ended up hiring a deaf actor, which was absolutely appropriate. But John McGinty, who played Lamar, was astounding mm. in his grace, in his understanding of the character, mm -hmm. and he sounded so much like Lamar. Really? That it sort of filled in some gaps of my own perception mm -hmm. of, of my brother's um, intellectual disabilities. John played the Hunchback of Notre Dame in a musical on Broadway, and he went to the producers and said, you need to let me audition because the hump hunchback is deaf. Oh. And they're like, but it's a musical. He's yeah. like, you need to let me audition because the hunchback is deaf. Yeah, but it's a musical. And they, what they ended up doing is they hired John because he's magnificent. And they had a singing actor follow John as he played the part, but nobody was looking at the other actor. Right. Because John was so powerful in his performance. That is fascinating. And so he's an amazing. Wow amazing person and so the folks they had for that production of Roe both for the audible and for the full production um, the gentleman who played uh, Mac in the full production um, is Andy Grotlucian a very well-known sort of Shakespearean actor and he was uh, he nailed Mac it was he was <laughs> great he was perfect as Mac do you know of any plans for I do, I do not. Apparently okay. during COVID, every famous writer wrote something. So they're doing Andrew Lloyd Webber again and other, yeah. other things like that. Mm -hmm. Although Grace McLean is playing in an Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, musical wow. right now, uh, Bad Cinderella oh, on, on cool. Broadway. Oh, yeah. Is she the Cinderella? She's the queen. The queen. Cool. Nice. She's the queen. Yes. <laughs> While your story is inspiring to everyone, many young girls like Ashton consider you a personal hero. Clearly, she does. What do you hope other young women might be able to take away from your story? One of the greatest gifts given to me early in my life was I went to public schools my whole life mm -hmm. and then came to Louisville to take care of a grandmother who had Alzheimer's and was able to go to a private school, a very good private school, a collegiate school. It was a shock for me, mm -hmm. and it was a shock for them. Mm -hmm. I was not a natural fit at collegiate. 
in my being did not belong there, but the faculty really and truly taught me how to do my homework, mm -hmm. and that has served me well. And only in the times I have not really done my homework have I been embarrassed by my performance in anything. But in the times when I have put in the work mm -hmm. and done the homework and done the time, mm -hmm. uh, things have been very successful. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. Yeah. I think you even referenced this in your book, but it is just so clear when, when we read about you and consider your accomplishments, you are a woman who knows how to set and achieve big goals. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but in the late 80s, you became the first American and the first woman in history to reach the South Pole by an overland route. Right, there, were, there was another woman, Shirley Metz, and there were other Americans, so I was among the first okay. women and first Americans to reach the South Pole by an overland route. I um, quite recently did a um, speech in Jackson, Wyoming, and they said, you know, she's first American, first woman, and uh, uh, one of my uh, expedition mates lives in Jackson. It was like, what am I, chopped liver him right? <laughs> and so, you know, for a decade, for decades, I was very careful to correct that, and then mm -hmm. I stopped correcting it, and then I got busted. <laughs> but we all touched the pole at the same time, mm -hmm. so we could each claim to have been the first. Oh, but, yeah. nice. Well, then, of course, in the late 90s, as we've been discussing, you were the first American and the first woman to row solo across the Atlantic. And then in the late 2000s is when you, you came out with this book, A Pearl yeah. in the Storm. So... I'm and, then, and then in the 2020s, Roe yeah. came out. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And what's next for you? Do you have another big goal that you're working no, on right now? I, I, I don't know. I mean, there, I feel there, um, there's change in the air and a shift in the wind. And um, I know I've got lots left to give. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I am asking for advice from higher powers, it's like, help me to do good in the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that next thing might be. Mm -hmm. um, but I've, I've, between being a trustee, a vice president, and a president, oh I've given 25 years to Spalding. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm, again, English teacher. I'm drawn to themes. I'm drawn to lessons. And it was so interesting. At one point, it's page 237 if anyone wants to look it up, but you said, the character of America is a crowd with one face, e pluribus unum, out of many, one, while the subtitle of your book is How I Found My Heart in the Middle of the Ocean. There were so many times I noticed that it seemed to be, um, there was a juxtaposition of isolation and in the individual right. against the interdependence and the community and what that meant to you. And, and then you had other lessons in there too. You were talking yeah. about jousting against um, helplessness. Yeah. So I would ask you, what is one lesson that you personally took away from your experiences that has just, you know, resonated with you? Yeah. Well, there's a or over in the corner of my office here. Oh, yes. And it's signed, and it has a little plaque on it that says, though we stand by ourselves, we're never alone. Mm -hmm. And I was leaving uh, an office in city government, and my colleagues gave me that or all signed with a lovely little plaque on it. And I said, that's a great quote. Who wrote it? They're like, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and that sense of no one achieves anything by themselves, ever. And um, the folks who said, I did this all by myself, well, yeah, did you? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, and that sense of, though we stand by ourselves, we are never alone. And when I talk to uh, young people, 
and they want to know, why did you row across the ocean? I was like, well, I rowed across the ocean because I was stupid. Most women don't have to row 3,333 miles to figure out that love and friendship are good things. Most <laughs> women just kind of get it. Yeah. I was a slow learner, you know, and I, I learned all my knowledge of the world came from books. Mm -hmm. And Muhammad Ali, all his knowledge of the world came from interacting with the world. We all have different points of view, and it's really important, particularly now, to dethrone ourselves from the center of our world mm -hmm. and try to place ourselves in somebody else's shoes um, because we've gotten way too judgmental. Looking around your office at all of your mementos, do you have a memento that this place is on fire? Right. What are you taking? Apologies. I am looking for a compass that clearly must be at home. Uh, you already got it out of here. <laughs> the, it's already out. It's already gone. Um, so on the top of the bookshelf are some white boots. Yes. That I used when I skied to the South Pole. Mm, yeah. I'd probably grab that or I'd grab... So what um, is the compass at home? The compass at home was a compass I used on the 1998 road that was okay. given to me by Barry Bingham, who okay. was a very dear mentor. Mm -hmm. um, behind you is a book... Uh, written by Jimmy Carter, The Craftsmanship of Jimmy Carter. It is signed by Jimmy Carter to me. Oh, nice. Um, and there was, I was at the Carter Center in, a, in Atlanta in a meeting, and a Secret Service agent came and said, Mrs. McClure, we need for you to come with us. And oh. I was like, ruh -roh. <laughs> Like, do I need my passport? Uh -huh. You know, and I followed him out and up the stairs, and President Carter was standing at the top of the stairs. He said, I understand you're a woodworker. I said, yes, sir, I am. And he gave me his book and signed it. And... Um, and there was just this moment, actually a friend had arranged the book to be given to me, but there was this moment with him at the top of the stairs with two introverts running out of things to say to each other. <laughs> and he said, well, I don't want to interrupt your meeting. And I'm like, oh, you're the president of the United States. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we have a, uh, a mutual friend uh, uh, named Rita uh, Thompson who arranged that scene. So, oh. yeah. That's lovely. Well, my uh, my uh, real last question was, is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with? Is there any way that they can they can learn more about you? Where can they buy your book? Anything you would like to leave us with? Uh, if they live in Louisville, Kentucky, they should go to Carmichael's to buy my book. Okay. You know, support local That's uh, right. booksellers. Um, if they do not, Amazon, Amazon, of course. Mm -hmm. They can go to Audible. I think Row is like $5.50. Again, I sold the rights to the book for a box of cookies. I don't get anything <laughs> for that. It's not a shameless plug for me. Mm -hmm. um, and support, support local mm -hmm. musicians and artists and actors because they've had a hard run. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Oh, my yes. pleasure. This has just lovely. been... Lovely. Yes. Very lovely. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes, just an honor to speak with you. Thanks. Well, Ashley, that was amazing. Yes, it was. It was an amazing experience. It was. In the moment, my brain was going so many yes. places, taking in what Tori was saying, mm -hmm. all the different points she was making, being amazed by some of the things yeah. she was sharing. Right. But I'm sure we could we could talk for an hour debriefing on some of our thoughts. But what are just a few things that struck you? Well, the thing that I identified with the most as far as my journey as a creative person was where she talked about the musical 
mm-hmm. and all the problems they had with the musical. It, it just was so relatable, mm-hmm. and it made me realize it's not it's not special to me. Everybody struggles. Everybody has these issues. But the thing to do is to keep pressing forward and to keep working through it. And I think that's the thing I take away from her the most is just, my gosh, the endurance mm-hmm. of spirit and of body mm-hmm. that she is capable of and still capable of. Still Rose still does all of these amazing things. And it was just very inspiring to get out there and do things with your life and and to take care of your body and to take Mm -hmm. care of your mind and and your spirit and all that and keep learning and keep growing. I like the word you used relatable because Mm -hmm. one thing that hit me was we were meeting with this woman who has set these world records Mm -hmm. more than the one that we talked about. You know, she's also skied overland. We mentioned it right there at the end. So she's achieved a number of things. She's worked for a mayor. She's met Muhammad Ali. I mean, she just had so many accomplishments behind her and yet talking to her in person she just felt very real, she did, very yeah. relatable. That was something I enjoyed. But I think a point that resonated with me was how encouraging she was to everyone, yeah. but especially to women. Yes. Talking about it's okay for us to set our goals and to go after them. You know, sometimes there are some expectations put on women that aren't necessarily put on men, mm-hmm. but you can do it and, mm-hmm. and to go after it. She actually, I think, was encouraging in other ways too. When she talked about support local. Right. I like that. I did too. Talking about, you know, the people who've been suffering. Go out and if you buy her book, go to Carmichael's or to your local bookstore. She was inspiring to me in terms of thinking about how we can really support others and stand behind others and be encouragers while we're also going after our own dreams. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a good time of year to do this episode, though Thanksgiving week, you'd like to take time and reflect and be thankful and start to set goals for yourself. Start thinking about the next Mm -hmm. year and maybe Tori has inspired you to set a new goal yeah good point Mm-hmm. So a big thank you and a cheers. A huge cheers. To Tori Murden McClure. Mm-hmm. It was just delightful talking with you. And a happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners. Yes, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll see you soon. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing at our website www.scandalwaterpodcast.com you can submit questions or your own story ideas access our sources and show notes see the merch we offer for sale and more you can join the scandal water community through our scandal water podcast facebook page or follow us on instagram or tiktok at scandal water podcast this episode was executive produced by candy thomas that's me and ashley raymer brown that's me it was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.